listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. So Edward, uh, this month, um, there's been a few, a few stories we should touch on. The first one is something we don't get to talk about very often, a new type of astronomical phenomenon. Um, so this is uh, a, a new type of event that we see uh, in space uh, that astronomers have seen. Uh, it's not something that has only just happened. It's just a new class of event that astronomers have just witnessed. Um, and it's, it's linked to uh, things we've, uh, people may have heard of. So something called novae. A nova is where you get a, um, a, a massive event on a star that makes it go bright. It's, it's the, a, a Latin name for new. So a nova star was a new star. And this is something that's a, a micronova. Yes, so, so we've had uh, supernovae, we've had hypernovae, we've had just novae. Um, in uh, 2017, we had a kilonova, and now we have a micronova. So it's, uh, it seems to be that uh, our detection capabilities for novae are getting that we can uh, detect and identify things which are smaller and smaller. And, and I guess if we if we think about where the names come from, so a nova is something people have heard about for months. So if you think about an, a normal nova is historically where this a star would brighten or to the naked eye might appear and would be there for weeks or months, right? It would it would be there for a while. And so astronomers from hundreds of years ago, or even before, would, would spot it and be able to record the fact there was this new object. A supernova was a much brighter thing, and that was a star exploding. Uh, I guess a, a hypernova is a very bright supernova, I think, isn't it? Just a, a very luminous yep. one, essentially. Um, uh, a, a kilonova is slightly less bright and shorter, so only a few days. So they're hard to see because they're only there for a few days, and that was merging neutron stars. And this is even shorter still. This micronova is really short in cosmic senses, isn't it? Yeah, it's only a few hours, and uh, so it's uh, it's a similar phenomenon to not to supernovae and hypernovae because they normally end up destroying the star that's creating them, but very similar to uh, a nova. Uh, it's uh, it, it's when uh, you have two stars that are companions, and one of them is stealing hydrogen from the other, and uh, it gets too much, it gets too greedy, and it vomits. And um, the micronova um, vomits out of the uh, the poles, out of the uh, the top and the bottom, um, and so that's why it only lasts a very short period of time because it's it's like it's eaten too much and it it has this explosion, and um, and and the thing can potentially do this um, lots of times because it doesn't destroy the star underneath. And a, a, a nova, by contrast, is something happening over the entire surface of the star, largely, which can be fairly, uh, fairly catastrophic, or it doesn't, doesn't normally end up destroying the star, I guess. But this is, the fact that these are only hours long and aren't as bright as a full nova, because it's only part of the star that's exploding. It's basically a fusion bomb on the surface of the star, right? It's, a, it's still a pretty beefy explosion in, in terms of human scales. Oh, but, yeah. And it's, yeah. You know, it's still visible from uh, the vast distances of space. So, you know, it's... Um, uh, it's something which is is highly explosive. It's actually, frankly, amazing that it doesn't destroy the star. It, it, it does significant damage to the star, I'd imagine. And if it does too, this too many times, I imagine that the star will not be able to recover from it terribly well. I think the estimates, I mean, stars are big, but the estimates here are that it's uh, 20 million trillion kilograms, um, which is a bit hard to imagine. So uh, also possibly equally hard to imagine 3.5 billion great pyramids of Giza. Um, I can't quite imagine 3.5 billion Great Pyramids, but uh, but there we go. Yeah, that's 
that's how much material it burns through in that explosion. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of stuff. So as you say, eventually the star will will run out and something more catastrophic might happen. But this is because we're observing the sky so much more regularly now. Yeah, yeah, and um, there are all sorts of missions which are doing surveys of this of transient phenomenon. Uh, so things which are changing in the sky. People thought for a long time that. Uh, really, there, there was, aside from asteroids and comets, the heavens stayed largely unchanged. You'd see slow changes of things. Uh, but actually, that's not true at all. Uh, we see that things happen very quickly. And actually, you have to be in the right place at the right time to see them um, traditionally. But now that we have uh, an era of surveying the whole night sky on various different cadences, um, that you can spot these things, which is extremely important for science to know that there are this variety of astronomical objects out there. Mm. Well, who knows? Maybe maybe next up will be Nano Novi. Uh, who knows? We'll uh, we'll change it, see how the names vary. But as astronomers, will be now on the lookout for these kind of things and, and seeing how many what the variety of them is like and, and what they tell us about the the occurrences of these explosions on the surfaces of stars. So speaking of things changing, we can come somewhat close to home. So instead of uh, light years and light years away, we're coming to just the outer edges of our solar system and the planet Neptune. Uh, Neptune is the furthest planet from the sun, these are the main planets. Uh, It takes 165 years to orbit the sun. And so its seasons are about 40 years long. So each of its, you know, four seasons is 40 years long. So that's pretty, pretty long. And it's it's heading into southern summer. So its southern hemisphere is, is heading into its its summer season. And if it was anything like the Earth, what you'd expect is it gets a bit warmer as it's axial, it's got a slight axial tilt. Southern hemisphere points towards the sun and it should get warmer. And rather confusingly, it's, well, it's not. Yes, um, that's uh, quite perplexing. Now you're talking about the surface temperatures which are quite cold um, because it's so far away from the sun. Uh, so the, the average temperature uh, is about minus 220 Celsius. Um, so we're talking quite cold. We're talking much colder than the surface of the Earth. And, um, but we're, we're seeing that the, the temperature has changed, has gone down by about 11 degrees uh, in the last 15, 20 years, 17 years. Um, so um, these are observations which have been done uh, from Earth on the, the very large telescope um, and uh, that's a, it's a, a European Southern Observatory telescope. And um, yeah, it's quite, it's actually quite amazing that you can measure the temperature of something yeah. so far in space from Earth. Uh, I think actually the, the, the takeaway from this story is not that there's been a, a, a crazy change in something that you wouldn't have expected. So the temperature going down in summer, which is completely unexplained at the moment. Um, but the the fact that you can actually make this measurement from the surface of Earth, um, it ha- it is admittedly an extremely uh, dry place in Chile, um, in the Atacama Desert, um, which so the moisture in the the Earth's atmosphere is the problem in measuring temperatures and things uh, of things far away, very cool temperatures out in space. Yes, it takes. It's one of the largest telescopes on Earth, so it takes an awful lot, uh, an awful lot of telescope power, if you like, to to observe this and and to do more. I mean, these are also one of the astonishing things here is these are these are essentially global measurements. So they they do get pictures of Neptune. They're not amazingly high resolution, 
So, the, but the, these measuring sort of global temperature averages or uh, and that kind of thing, and, and for the fact that that to have changed by such a large amount, um, and we talk about average temperatures on the Earth changing by degrees. There's obviously annual fluctuations and seasonal fluctuations, but the average temperature changing by degrees over decades uh, is all, all the, the climate change uh, monitoring going on at going on at the moment. So, by you know, ten degrees or thereabouts changing over the course of seventeen years. On a you know such a tiny fraction of a of a Neptunian year is is quite astonishing. Okay, um, I guess the next the next big way of studying that on Neptune is probably to go there, and there are plans afoot to try and launch missions to the outer planets, but they're still on the drawing board. It's going to be a long time before we get any missions out to the uh, to the outer planets, but uh, we do have a lot of other missions ongoing. There's just been uh, an announcement that uh, eight missions. Uh, that NASA runs, so the US Space Agency have got extensions to their missions. Um, so there's a bunch of Mars missions, so Curiosity, which is a rover that's been there since 2012. Got InSight, which landed in was it 2016, I think, InSight landed, which is measuring Mars quakes. Um, uh, 2018. 2018, apologies, yeah. Um, and uh, MAVEN, which is looking at the atmosphere of Mars, uh, which got there in 2013, 14, that kind of time. And then the really long-running one, Odyssey, Mars Odyssey, which got there in 2001, hence its name for those of uh, familiar with the, the film and the book. Uh, that's been that's been going now for, well, 21 years. It's a very long time for a mission to be uh, operating at Mars. Uh, and along with Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been there since 2005. So that's a... Um, what, have I just listed five missions? I've lost track now of missions <laughs> in Mars, which are going to carry on going. Uh, which is um, which is great news to to see the this sort of fleet this armada's flotilla whatever you want to call it of spacecraft that's uh, still operating yeah. on Mars. The funding that's um, been extended is the people on Earth uh, because obviously these things are autonomous. We're not sending things to Mars to refuel these these particular missions. So they are they are autonomous and basically at a certain point um, that the agency would say. Okay, enough is enough. Uh, we're not going to fund the people and all of the, you know, the the things on Earth to continue monitoring these uh, and all of the infrastructure. Um, so it's it is a uh, it it is a cheap thing to do in the grand scheme of things. It's not actually, if you looked at the dollar value, it's not cheap at all. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is a fairly cheap way of continuing to get amazing science because these things have really outlived their operational lifetime, um, or particularly in the case of Odyssey, many times over. Mm. Um, Mars Odyssey is, is uh, really quite an amazing spacecraft because it's, it's providing the relay for the, a lot of the, the missions. So the reason that we can get images from Mars is because Odyssey is sending, has a, has a high-gain antenna that's sending stuff back to the Earth. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a stalwart of the Martian fleet, if you like. Uh, and and at the point at which that stops, then we have, you know, possibly a problem. There are other spacecraft there that can do the same job, but it will be uh, sorely missed. So it's great that it's it's uh, continuing. Um, other missions that are, uh, are being continued. So Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been orbiting the moon uh, for over a decade now. Um, that's mapping its surface. It centers the pictures of the uh, the Apollo landing sites uh, and uh, and so on to see footprints on the moon. Not a high resolution, but or at least the the tracks of of where astronauts had had walked over the moon. Uh, and that's going to be really important for future uh, crewed missions to the moon because it's mapping the entire surface. Uh, 
so that's going to be a very very useful uh very useful as well uh and then um there's, there's a mission a nasa mission has gone to the the uh, astro- asteroid bennu this osiris rex mission uh it's going to return some samples uh to earth and then carry on going it's going to go to another asteroid which is uh which is fun so it's off to apophis which is um, it's long been a, a, a name in uh, astronomical circles. The asteroid Apophis has is, is been uh, known about for some time because it's a large asteroid that gets quite close to the Earth in uh, in a few years, 2029. Um, I mean, quite close is still 20,000 miles away, so, you know, 30,000 kilometres. But still, that's that's scary close for, for something that's um, uh, that, that's this large. It would certainly hurt if it hit. Um, yeah, it's four. I mean, it's four hundred meters across. So, uh, and that that is a very large. When we talk about asteroids that come close to the Earth, because there's there's all sorts of near Earth asteroids um, that some even pass in between the Earth and the Moon, uh, but they're always fairly small. There are a few. They do a fair amount of damage if they hit, but they're normally tens of meters across. And Apophis is is a very large asteroid, four hundred yeah. meters across. Uh, and and because it comes so close to the Earth. Uh, in uh, a few years or shortly after that, then um, uh, Osiris, uh, well, Osiris Rex will become Osiris Apophis Explorer. So Osiris Apex is uh, is it's going to be his new mission name, uh, and that will uh, that will go and orbit Apophis and tell us more about that asteroid. So it's great to take the opportunity of it of it flying uh, of it flying past. I think the other mission to mention, I guess, is New Horizons, the mission that spent nearly a decade like, traveling through the solar system out to Pluto. Uh, and then visited uh, Arakoth uh, in the outer solar system as well, a smaller object, and is continuing out of the solar system. So it's following in the footsteps of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 and the Pioneer missions and so on. And again, as you say, this is funding the people on Earth to carry on communicating with and maybe see if there's somewhere else it can go and visit. Yeah, New Horizons is, um, I think, the uh, the fastest moving uh, human-made object um, I think it's the the thing that's traveling the fastest because it's just been uh, since it's been launched it's been slingshotted around various different astronomical objects in the solar system um, and and the sort of sped up um, and there's nothing to slow it down now it was certainly the fastest at launch um, uh, and, and yeah as you say all these spacecraft get slingshotted by by things to get them out into the outer solar system um, which is uh uh, important, so important to their mission. So that's going to carry on exploring the very, very outer reaches of the solar system. Uh, coming even closer to home, um, uh, there's actually in the last month, there's been uh, one was, as we record this earlier today, so hours ago, uh, a mission, uh, it's what you might call a normal mission to the space station with uh, uh, four astronauts on board. Um, uh, so three NASA astronauts and a European astronaut. So as we spoke about last month, the the conflict, the, the war, the invasion of uh, Ukraine has led to um, uh, tensions, at the very least, between NASA and the Russian Space Agency. But the International Space Station has continued operation, and there's another crew has gone. Now, using a Russian launch vehicle would be rather difficult at the moment. So these have gone on a SpaceX uh, mission, uh, SpaceX rocket, uh, up to the up to the space station um, to do their mission. But they're they're actually the second launch in the last month to go up there. There was another one called Axiom. Um, and that was not uh, space agency astronauts. That was that was people who'd found another way. Instead of going through uh, months, years of training, they um they just paid. Yes, that's right. The, and the price tag was quite quite steep. It was uh, fifty five million dollars each 
um, to go on holiday to the space station. <laughs> um, it, it really is quite astounding that people can pay to, to do this. And it's really quite astounding that actually the um, Crew 4 went up just a few days after this private crew came back. Uh, that this is almost like an elevator. It's yeah. uh, or like it's it's a, a scheduled um, trip on a like a tour bus that we used to go on as kids. <laughs> uh, I find it quite staggering that that not only can you pay to go to the space station, uh, which I think would be an amazing ride, uh, but probably uh, less enjoyable than you'd think. Yeah. I think it would be very enjoyable for the first couple of hours, and then, you know, when you realise that it's really cramped and it's really difficult to sleep with the sun, uh, with the Earth flashing past and the sun um, going round, you know, not having sunrise every ninety minutes. Um, that uh, I'd be very surprised if any of those people go back. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think the thing that gets me is that that's two launches in in a, within a month. So they came back end of April, having spent a couple of weeks up there. And then, what, two days later, this next mission, the Crew-4 mission, launched with, with the astronauts on. So that's two two missions in a month. That's for SpaceX. For, for SpaceX, for this, this and their reusable launch vehicles and the Crew Dragon and so on. But two launches in a month to the space station is kind of what people thought would be happening decades ago when we had the space shuttle flying um i mean i i grew up in the in the era and, and and i guess we both grew up in the era where space flight became kind of routine in that there was the space shuttle flying it was taking people up into low earth orbit but it was really expensive and really hard because the space shuttle was a, a really complicated uh beast to to relaunch and to repair when it came back for all sorts of reasons involving military involvement in its design and uh and so on but now it kind of feels like we're getting there to space actually becoming this thing that can happen on a you know a weekly cycle, not a, you know not every month or two, which is I think quite quite exciting. Although it might seem mundane, it might there's a risk that it becomes mundane in that it's just something people do, albeit you know either with a very high price tag or it's just you know just someone's job. I think it's I think it's cool that space is. Get becoming very routine in that sense. I think that's a, a good thing, and I I think that's exciting that it's something that's so routine for you know so many more people be able to go into space. I don't know what you think about the uh, how about that. No, I absolutely love the idea of going into space in a routine, uh, be, becoming routine. Um, I um, I I don't know how sustainable it is uh, to do that in the long term, um, particularly on uh, use it, the technology is changed um, to launch people, but it's really essentially that you're setting fire to stuff and, you know, it's not it's not new rocket technology in the real sense. They've refined a very old technology uh, for doing this. And I think until we have new sorts, methods of propulsion, that this is not going to be sustainable um, in the long term, um, you can go to low Earth orbit in this type of way, but uh, but sending people further afield is extremely difficult, mm. um, and always will be. So even to the moon uh, is is still going to be extremely expensive, and is only it's not going to be, I think, routine. Yeah, I think as well. The other thing to bear in mind, I suppose, to to, to dampen my excitement, is that uh, you you either have to pay millions and millions of pounds, which of course 
the vast, vast majority of people can't do. Um, have to, you know, uh, just go on a two-week holiday to West Wales or you know the Algarve or whatever they do instead of instead of going up into space. Uh, versus, uh, and the other option is to become an astronaut, and I think that's that's sort of the routine, exciting thing is that being an astronaut has been a you know it's a job you can apply for, and and now there will be more or there can be more astronaut missions uh, to go on, and particularly with future space station missions and so on. So uh, that I think is is the the route that most people would have to take. I mean, we're still talking about there's something like 600 people have been into space so far. Um, so that's still not many out of, you know, getting on for 8 billion. Um, so it's still a very much a, a, a small fraction, but it is a, it's a growing number of people and, and something that people can genuinely aspire to, to say, I want to be an astronaut. And it's something you can then apply to, uh, to do later. So I think that's a, uh, that's, that's a good move. That's all we have time for this month. My thanks to Edward. Don't forget, you can find previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. And you can also search for us on Spotify. Just look for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.